Hi, I'm uh, Ronald D. Moore. Brandon Braga. And we are the writers of uh, Star Trek First Contact. Uh, this story began shortly after Generations had premiered, as I recall. I remember that within just a month or two of Generations being in the theaters, Rick Berman pulling us aside and saying that uh, Paramount was very happy and wanted to press on into the next uh, next generation film and wanted us to write it again and we immediately started coming up with the story ideas and my memory is that Rick wanted to do something with time travel and we wanted to do something with the Borg or vice versa I remember well I think our first impulse was always to bring the Borg back because the Borg had not really been seen in full force as the regular Borg since Best of Both Worlds. We'd done little variations on them with, with Lore, the Data Twin, and so we, we thought, why not bring them back on the big screen? And I think you're right, Rick wanted to do time travel, so we, we decided to combine them, though we went through a lot of different variations on what time period we would set the film. Oh, that's and, right. And if you recall, we originally considered medieval times. That's right. We did. There was a medieval version of this. And so I didn't Rick come in and say something like, "Patrick is adamant he will not wear tights." Exactly. And that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we went round and round about where to set it, and ultimately we decided on setting it in the near future, right after World War th the fictitious World War III when humanity was kind of down in the dumps and actually Star Trek was about to be born the right yeah that became the sort of thing that we rallied around was let's see the birth of Star Trek with the the first contact with an alien race and sort of how human we were always I think interested in the idea of how humanity had sort of crawled up from the gutter so to speak in, in Star Trek lore it was never explained how Earth moved from this sort of the, the Earth that we know today, driven by nation states and petty rivalries and uh, race problems and poverty and all the problems of modern society, how it moved into this more idealistic future, and it seemed like this was sort of the pivot point. And the, th the, th the three Vulcans at the end, of course, being the three wise men of sorts, that <laughs> kind of a religious <laughs> yes. feel. And really what it did for us was, what's at stake in the film is Star Trek itself. Yeah, that's right. Star Trek itself is at stake, we kept saying. And the Borg, I mean, the Borg were like the perfect villain. Like Brandon said, we we had, an exp we had, we had used them periodically in the series. They would come in and do guest shots, and it was always like, oh, now we're bringing on the Borg. And you never quite got to do them justice and to really see enough of them and really play them out because of the constraints of doing it on a, on a TV budget. Here's that famous first shot that everybody loved, the yeah. long, long pullback. <clears throat> I believe this was Rick's idea, if I if I recall. Rick had the had this notion of coming out of Picard's eye all the way back, see, all yeah. the way back. It's a great shot. You know, an interesting production note. We we redesigned the Borg to be feature quality, and but they were very expensive, and really I think there were only eight or so Borg made for yeah. the entire film, and we Frakes had to make eight look like eighty, and a lot of the Borg you see in their alcoves are actually dummies. Mm-hmm. Which held up pretty well. Nobody really caught that. But yeah. yeah, a lot of the Borg are stationary in the backgrounds are just dummies that, that are only even half mocked up, I believe. I don't think there's even any backs on some of them. 
And of course, this is all in. Uh, these are all new interiors that were created specifically for first contact because we had destroyed Enterprise D in generations. And part of uh, there was a great deal of discussion about the new Enterprise and how it would be and how was it different than the old Enterprise. And I think we wrote in the initial pages of the script that the new Enterprise was more muscular and a little bit more m more military looking a little like scarier looking ship than the Enterprise D had been of course the opening dream sequence is to remind the audience and tell new viewers that Picard was once a Borg you know one of the things we set out consciously to do with this film was make it accessible to even non-Star Trek Filmgoers. Yeah, this was truly more of a... I mean, it's ironic, because this also depends completely upon an episode that the audience may not have seen. Borg's, uh, Picard's experience with the Borg in Best of Both Worlds, where he's captured, turned into Locutus and damaged, and that this movie, the emotional drive of this movie, picks up from that, uh, that backstory. And yet, it is a very standalone movie. Hopefully you can enjoy this film without having seen much of the series. And that was, that was the, the dance we did in both the Star Trek features that we did was trying to make them uh, accessible to a general audience that may not know much about Star Trek but also satisfy the hardcore fans and people who watch the show regularly. It's another good thing about making this film about the birth of Star Trek and introducing a character, uh, it, it, the, the Alfred Woodard character, Lily, who is a point-of-view character for the non-fan. What does Star Trek mean? What is this future of yours, mm -hmm. she says to Picard? And we kind of fill her in and therefore the non-viewer and the Borg these Borg robots were just kind of had a broad appeal to people mm -hmm. and I believe it's just my opinion that it's one of the reasons this film was was very successful it went beyond the normal parameters yeah and the Borg I think the reason one of the many reasons that the Borg worked as a villain was this sort of unstoppable nature of them this sort of single-minded quality to the Borg we will assimilate you resistance is futile here was the foe that you, you just couldn't reason with, couldn't talk to. There was nothing you could really do except run from, which became a trap in a, in a, in a, in the television series. Because in the television series, whenever you brought them into the show, you then had to beat the unbeatable foe every time and send them away. And the more times you did that, the less threatening they became over time. So we wanted to use them very sparingly in the series. But in a feature film, you could really enjoy it and could really play them full tilt. The evolution of the Borg in this film, <clears throat> we actually wrote a full storyline outline, I believe, before it was uh, Jonathan Dolgen, the head of uh, Paramount at that time, who said, you know, you need someone to talk. These Borg are just zombies. And uh, we sat down with Rick and we conceived the Borg Queen. Yeah, it was. The Borg had always presented a problem in the show in how to dramatize them. Except for the initial encounter. I mean, the first time that they were presented in the series, the Enterprise was flung to another part of the galaxy by this omnipotent character, Q, and they run into the Borg. This giant cube comes out of nowhere, and, and the Borg cannot be stopped. I mean, you, you run into them, and they, they just come at you, and they're going to assimilate you, and they cut through all the Enterprise defenses, and they cut holes in the hull, and the, and the Enterprise is just completely overwhelmed. And Q ultimately saves them and sends them home. And they were really scary after, in this sort of weird way because there was no single person, there was no voice, there was no person you could hook in, into. They just talked in this big, you know, collective voice. 
And then you would try to do episodes around that idea, and inevitably you always found some way to personify them. You would make Picard a Borg. You would... Hugh the Borg. Hugh the Borg, who was separated from the collective and could talk as, a, as, a, as an individual. And then we did a whole episode about a group of individuals. And in the feature, we tried, yeah, in our first story document, we tried to preserve the sort of hive-like nature of the Borg and make them just pure what they were, this mindless collective that could not be reasoned with. And Dolgen looked at it and said, yeah, well, but you need somebody to talk to and there's no drama here. And he was right. I mean, it's, it's we needed the villain. We needed somebody for them to come up against, somebody you could, you know, be afraid of, to talk to, to have scenes with, and, and thus was born the Borg Queen. This, uh, for some reason, I remember this whole opening sequence with, you know, Data and Picard and the Enterprise getting the word that uh, the Borg were attacking Earth, and then the subsequent battle sequence being rewritten, like, endlessly. For some reason, this went through, like, billions of just tedious renovations. The the film actually went through some significant rewrites initially. Once we got the story down, it, it didn't really change much, but the first draft had Picard off the ship down in the, in the little village where he f- falls in love with a girl who's a photographer and meanwhile Riker's upstairs battling the Borg right. and there was this whole different kind of storyline going on and it didn't really work all the Borg stuff, the battle in the hall, all that that was all Riker mm-hmm. meanwhile Picard's having a romance we flew to New York, had a meeting with Patrick mm-hmm. and he said, why am I not fighting the Borg? why yeah. am I not on my ship? And to make a long story short, we completely rebroke the story. But what had happened was, this is just an interesting tidbit, Mad Magazine had gotten a hold of the first draft script somehow. you remember this one? No, I don't remember this. And they did a parody of First Contact when the film came out. But apparently they wanted to get a jump start because they based the entire... Draw all the drawings and storyline on that first draft. On the first draft. So it to me okay. it must be an interesting collector's item because if you read the Mad Magazine parody, it has to do with him going down and falling in love with this girl on the on who's a photographer. Yeah. And it just bears no resemblance to the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean it really was a different story. It was about Picard. He was going to create the the first contact ship, right? Like he, yeah, he was, he was going to help like, build it. Exactly, help build it. And yeah. a dream of his as a child, and it was a whole emotional connective tissue to the first contact ship and Picard. And there's this woman who's starting to get suspicious of him in this sort of post-apocalyptic world. And and meanwhile, as sort of a B story action runner, we had Riker and Data and everybody else upstairs on the Enterprise battling the Borg. And after the meeting with Patrick, yeah, we just inverted. We just inverted the story literally. We just swapped Riker and Picard, and by that switch, the A story and the B story changed. And so the the battle with the Enterprise upstairs becomes the dominant force in the story. And then Riker has the the lighter B story, which is actually kind of nice because then the B story had the room to be lighter and a little mm-hmm. more funnier and a little bit more character. The fleet responded, sir. They're standing by. Um, so the, there, there can be no doubt that the way the film came off, uh, and you add the addition of the of the Data Borg Queen arc as well, that one of the things that works about the film, great battle stuff here, spectacular, the, the idea that we would introduce that Borg ships had different shapes. They weren't all cubes. We have a sphere. Mm-hmm. It was like this great new idea, you yeah. know. This is a great shot of this thing coming out. The Borg are very into geometrics for some reason. 
although I will say that this, you know, even this battle sequence is like, you know, a quarter the size of what we had envisioned when we were writing the sequence and what we were hoping to get on the budget that we had. We had this massive battle. We had a big appetite, and uh, on both of these, the Star Trek films we worked on, there was the painful process of having to scale everything down. Oh, and this is, that's right. At this point in Star Trek history, Worf had moved over to Deep Space Nine and was one of our characters on Deep Space Nine, and he was on the Defiant and engaged in this battle because the Defiant was a ship that we had at Deep Space and got swept up in this battle against the Borg and then comes and rejoins his own. It's a great way to introduce him, though, on the bridge of that ship. He just walks in. I do remember on an early draft, Ira read an Ira Bear, who was the executive producer on Deep Space, and who I was working for at the time. He read an early draft of this, and is the same sequence played out, but somehow we'd implied that like the Defiant was destroyed or something. Yeah, he got very upset. He got very upset, (laughs) and I I didn't. We didn't mean to destroy the Defiant, but he was really. I said, "So what'd you think?" And he just he ranted at me, (laughs) destroying the Defiant, and it was really his only note, (laughs) the whole script. So we went back. We're very careful that the Defiant actually did did uh, tough little ship. Tough little ship. This sequence had a lot. There was lots of discussions about how the Enterprise and and company were going to travel back through time. And trying to explain all this to the audience in succinct sort of techno babble terms, and ultimately it's you watch it and it's just it's a big well, it's pretty circle clean. and you it, get through it. It's a circle and you get through it, much like they they slingshot it around the sun in yeah. Star Trek Four. We didn't want to get into the traditional TNG techno babble. Just right. go through the damn. Just hole. go through the hole. Go back in time. The audience doesn't care how you get there. This was very cool. This whole assimilated Earth. Optical. In fact, at a very early stage, I think we start, talked about starting the film in a Borgafoid city on Earth where yeah. all of our people's memories had been erased and they were Borg drones. Needless to say, that changed. This is, of course, uh, Mon- uh, where, uh, Montana, Montana, which actually, you know, I don't remember where it was shot. I guess the Frakes commentary track yeah, will tell you that. Yeah, where that was. This is the post-apocalyptic uh, campsite. You know, one of the things that really works about this film, and I and I think I can speak for Ron when I say that we really like this film a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, unlike the problems uh, with story problems we had in Generations and trying to kind of feel our way through the feature film experience, mm-hmm. we'd roughed that. We've got we went through our rough spots, and this film generally works, and it has an intricate structure, and it's. Uh, much was much more of a, a gratifying experience. In the I end. enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed writing it a lot more. I enjoyed the production more. Watching the the initial cuts was more. It just you just knew that this one was going to work and that it was going to be received well. And that we kind of had all the pistons firing at this point. This is Zephram Cochran, of course, um, who is another character that we lifted out of Star Trek lore. In the original Star Trek series, they had introduced a character of uh, Zephram Cochran as the man who invented warp drive. <clears throat> and in the original series, he's still, it's a complicated story, but he, he's still a young man. He looks nothing like um, uh, James, Cromwell. James Cromwell. And the character is really nothing like uh, the way we play him here. And we have very long discussions about who Cochran was and who he should be in this film. 
and what we decided was you wanted to see a transition. You want to see an arc for the character so that the character who is a certifiable genius and is going to invent warp drive starts the movie out as more of a drunk and sort of a cipher and, you know, a guy who doesn't care that much and is very cynical about the world around him but is working on this great thing and that by the end of the movie through his interaction with our characters and sort of lift, literally lifting his eyes to the sky and seeing something great. He becomes himself, a Roddenberry person. He becomes a Roddenberry person the man who will invent warp drive and take humanity to the stars. And that it's was also an interesting concept <clears throat> that if you could go back in history to meet one of the great historical figures that you grew up idolizing to find out he was a selfish drunk. Yeah. And many of them were. You know, some of the greatest figures in history that we worship, you go back and meet him and you go, God, that guy's not very likable at all. So we think here that the Borg have been destroyed. Only later to learn that they've beamed aboard... This was a great set too. I mean, I really yeah. liked the, the the new Enterprise bridge that was it was bigger and plusher and just felt more real than the Enterprise. Lots of lights and lots controls of and lots of things to go darker. Back. Just look, it just looks meaner and, and, yeah. and cooler. April fifth being the day of first contact, which is actually my first son's birthday, which is how that That's was chosen. Came here to do stop first contact. How much damage, Lieutenant? Now, Neil McDonough has, of course, gone on to become a pretty successful actor. He's got a TV show in the air right now. It's a minority report. Computer, mid-21st century civilian clothing. Number one, you have the bridge. This was also a tradition we wanted to sort of get back to, that we made a deliberate attempt to go back to in this episode, in this movie, was the captain leads the away team. You know, I mean, Kirk's era in the original series, the captain led. You know, he would get in the transport room and he would beam down into dangerous circumstances and whatever. And there was something sort of classically heroic about that. And the TV series, more realistically, you know, the captain stays on the bridge and he would send other people down to, into dangerous situations to see what's happening. But we kind of, there's something great and sort of classic about, you know, he's the captain. Let him lead. He goes ashore. He checks out the situation. He grabs a phaser and, <laughs> you know, and his pretty doctor, and he goes down, and, you know, himself. This, uh, <clears throat> these, set, these are not sets. These were actual, uh, all of the missile silo material was shot on location. This included everything here. Um, at a missile silo in, in Arizona, and the ship that you're about to see is... Uh, a nuclear warhead. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's <laughs> an, an old like Titan an, missile that they had. We had rebuilt. Herman Zimmerman, our brilliant production designer, turned it into the ship. Yeah. And it's. It, I was just a, uh, blown away by this. There, it was a great. No spot. opticals here. This is really yeah, this the is place. Real, this is a real object. It's a real thing. It was fun climbing around. This is an old missile silo out in Arizona, right? Yeah, yeah. And we went down into the hole and went out there uh, shooting. It was only a few days that I went to the, the location, actually. I think we went out there to do some rewrites. We went out there, and we were still working on some, some other sequences. So Bran and I flew out and stayed for a couple of days at the set and met with Patrick and Brent and Rick, and we were working on script pages, and then we would go down into the, the missile silo itself. And it, it was a trip. You'd go pretty far down in the ground, and in these subterranean tunnels, and if you had claustrophobia, it was not a good place to be. I like this moment right here where he says, uh, greetings. Greetings. It's very it, Data. It's very Data, and I, I remember talking about, let's give Data a couple of moments, and one coming up with Picard when they're touching the missile, that really shows Data's innocence. 
so that when he's corrupted by the Borg Queen, mm-hmm. and, you know, let's remind our people of who Data is in this. Severe theta radiation poisoning. Radiation is coming from the damaged throttle. Theta radiation has been an ongoing affliction throughout Star Trek history. <laughs> yes, there's various radiation problems you don't want, and they're all solved by you know Doctor Crusher's hypospray. You get cancer, she gives you a spray. You get radiation poison, she gives you a spray. You get a cold, then you're in trouble. So we get Lily to the ship. We have less than 14 hours before the ship has to be launched. I, I'm trying to remember our initial ideas on the on, on the ship itself. As I recall, the, the initial Phoenix was going to be more of a space shuttle type ship, and it was outside. It was like on some big gantry in like an airfield, and I think there was a much more elaborate description of what the Phoenix was in the initial drafts, and it just became unproducible on our budget, and what could we do? And no one was real wild at this point about trying to go all digital for something like this or a big mm-hmm. virtual set. And I think we, I think it was something we came up with, you, me, and Rick, was the idea of trying to, of finding a missile silo and doing it as an under, underground missile silo. And, and the irony that a weapon of mass destruction would be used to usher in a new era for humanity was a nice image as well. Yeah. This beat here, I remember when we talked about this, this beat of Picard touching the, touching the ship and feeling very connected to it. It came out of uh, memories I had about being in the National Air and Space Museum and wanting to reach out and just, I would sneak a touch on the Apollo 11 command module. And it was something very personal and thrilling about the ability to reach out and tactily touch the object that had, had flown to the moon and back as a child. I remember just how powerful that was and wanting to have part, Picard have the same kind of feeling to to the physical ship and then the great thing was in the movie was that then that actually feeds into data's later line where data's his whole thing about sensation and mm-hmm. feeling and mm-hmm. her blowing on his on his skin it's all about and then ripping his skin the whole thing yeah you're absolutely right detecting imperfections in the titanium casing temperature variations in the fuel manifold Troy is particularly charming in this episode. In this, I keep calling it an episode, but, but Troy, I, I find particularly charming in this movie. Yeah, she did a great job. She just sort of shines a bit. And she's always kind of fun when she shows up. I always kind of look forward to her next appearance. There was nothing more important to him than this ship. This flight, it was his dream. Captain, we should consider the possibility that... I love when Picard saying it's so important to him, it was his dream, and Cochran could care less. Oh, I know, Cochran <laughs> could care less. It's like, yeah, it's his thing he's doing. Yeah, warp drive, whatever. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the farm... Here's our first scare moment. Remember earlier there was the engineering scene where you see Jordy walking around? We uh-huh. really felt it was important to establish engineering because it, the next time we see it, it gets borgified. If you listen to the dialogue in that scene, it's just technical babble crap. Oh, yeah, it's just there all There was no scene meaningless. We just had to show it. engineering. It's like, give us a t- And this is like, yeah, classic. Put him in the Jeffries tube and, you know, okay, something bad's going to happen to these people you've never met before. There's the board taking off the grating. <laughs> But I like this. I like this shot. This is a. This is all fun. It's great that she looks afraid because so often, like our Starfleet people, are never really afraid of it. And they're unflappable. Yeah, they just kind of come around corners and confront it with monsters, and they go, "Oh." She's a good screamer. She's a good screamer and great eyes. (laughs) Like 
She went through Starfleet Academy for this. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, Picard consents some the Borg. He's still connected to them on some level. This was a this was a long running discussion too. How you know what Picard knew? When did he know? What was his connection to the Borg? Was he being controlled by the Borg? Did he understand them? There was I remember there was lots of sort of back and forth with the with the studio about them not understanding exactly what was going on between Picard and the Borg and, and us rewriting these scenes in many different ways and in many different styles to sort of convey this sort of this connection that he had. With but it all came together because it, his connection to them comes up again and again and it really makes him a cool lead hero. Because yeah. only he understands them. And he's a leader with a secret. He's got a, a secret connection that he doesn't want to talk about. Cross you to bridge. Come out of war. I need to know exactly what's been happening. We just lost contact with Deck 16. Communications, internal sensors. This was, when we were talking about upstairs, even with Riker, there was this notion of the Borg getting in the ship somewhere down low so to speak, and then, you know, taking over the ship deck by deck by deck, turning it into essentially a Borg hive. And there's something scary and unnerving about that and knowing that they're just inevitably creeping upwards and getting closer and closer to the bridge, which is, you know, the heart of it all. I knew their ship was doomed. Our shields were down. Somehow they transported over here without being detected. It was similar like the Enterprise and then Earth. I also want to mention Jerry Goldsmith's um, score in all this, which I think is a really evocative, surprisingly emotional score mm -hmm. all the way through, even in the action sequence and suspense stuff. It's the best to me, that, that theme that's in the credits, which only reprises twice in the film, once in the scene with the phaser, with the phaser where Lily gives it back to Picard, and then once really nicely at the end when first contact is made. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it adds so much emotion to particularly that final moment, it's moving. Yeah, it is. It's a surprising. It's, it's a, a beautiful it's score. A beautiful score. And I remember uh, it was the only scoring session that I've gone to where there was a full orchestra, and there was Jerry Goldsmith, who was, you know, the yeah. who was unfortunately he's died in the past couple of years. But it's amazing to meet him. He's a legend, and this long white ponytail and glasses, and he was so in command of the entire production and the way it was happening and knew exactly what he wanted to get out of the music and what was wrong and which notes he wanted to emphasize and not and it's an amazing process to watch to watch the musicians sit and most of them were seeing it for the very first time and it would just play this score beautifully it's the Bob Picardo from Voyager cameo I'm a doctor not a doorstop yeah, and this was the opportunity to put these two characters together for the first time. For two exactly seven seconds. Yeah. <laughs> According to Star Which is like recall Gates wasn't too happy about actually. I don't think Gates wanted one of her one of her scenes in the movie to have to share it with right. Bob as I recall. <laughs> he may have been a last minute edition. I think he was. I think it was a very last minute edition. Well, because wasn't in an early draft of the film, yeah, it was, in an early draft, it wasn't going to be Bob, it was going to be Quark, right? Wasn't Quark from Deep Space going to show up at the very end? Like they come back to the 24th century and oh. Quark was there in some Gosh. context, I can't recall. Yeah. But there was some, the Enterprise comes home, mission successful, and out comes Quark with like two babes on, one on each arm or something. Gosh. I barely remember that. And I don't remember why or how we were going to concoct. 
did do a whole thing where they come. I mean, the film ends where it, ne- where it needs to end right now, but we had this yeah. whole epilogue. Yeah, there was an epilogue. epilogue. Yeah, you're right. Did they come back to Deep Space Nine or something? They might have. They might have docked with Deep Space Nine to to bring Worf home and do s- yeah and do some repairs. Yeah. And oh, and this is Picard's vest. He gets to wear the vest. Yeah. I love this scene because it's very action, very Jerry yeah. Bruckheimer. I know it's very <laughs> very Bruckheimer. Here we go. We got all the big all the big guns. We're all gonna handle him. I love it when he throw that he threw that one to, to Data, and Data just plucks it out of the air and checks the, the yeah. action. You know, just very matter of fact. We go right from the scene. I always felt, and I totally stand alone on this, that you go from this. Yes, we're gonna go beat the Borg to this scene, the drunk scene, mm. and it, I never liked this scene. Mm. I always had mixed feelings about it, but everybody. Ended up loving it. Yeah, I know you. I, I, I love this thing. Yeah. I love the look on Troy's face, and she's been here a while. And she <laughs> I, I, I stand totally corrected. I just remember thinking, "Oh shit, it's going to slow down the movie." I don't like the music. I will say that I never liked this particular song for this scene. Ooby Dooby. Yeah, that's. Uh, it, you know what? You know what? The problem is, it's too goofy a song. It's too goofy a song. It's yeah. a goofy song in a goofy scene. But I like that. I like he pulls the plug and, and this Cochran tries to hit him with a beer bottle. And this is, you know, Jonathan, you know, it's, it is no great easy thing to do to direct and act in a picture, even in a, in a, not a non-leading role like, like he's doing here. But he's really loose and relaxed through this whole picture and his performance. And right. He's really charming. But of course, in another way that I was wrong, this is a really important scene. Because we meet him for the first time. Yeah, this, this, this really time. And we see that table. he's we see that he's uh, a drunk, or I'm sorry, an alcoholic. An alcoholic. I like the fact that Troy's there belting him back too. Well, there was this whole thing in Star Trek <laughs> mythos about uh, you know on the Enterprise and Next Generation they drink synthahol, mm-hmm. which is just like alcohol and can get you drunk, but you can dismiss the effects with just a thought. Yeah. You know? <laughs> there's wishful thinking. I know, there's wishful thinking, <laughs> which should make alcoholics out of the galaxy, you would think. Oh, really? Yeah. I can drink as much as I want and get as drunk as I want and just, you know, take it away? What was I say? You're drunk. I am not. Yes, you are. Look. I remember. Did you come to this location, Ron? I, I went up there one no. night. It's freezing cold. The one we're looking for. And I spent the last twenty minutes trying to keep his hands off me. And again, Herman Zimmerman's great. This village he built was in the middle of nowhere. It's a primitive it's a primitive culture. And the idea that the little notes we keep hitting about how primitive they are, mm-hmm. and yet it's this primitive, so-called primitive 21st century woman, Lily, who makes yeah. the 24th century man realize he's being primitive yeah. in his in his his irrational emotional vengeance. Well, it was really, I mean, I was glad that we went this direction with the character Picard because... You know, it's, it, it was sort of a risky thing within the Star Trek context to take the captain down that road where he really does lose sight of the larger thing issues at stake. He really does sort of fall prey to his obsession, his uh, Ahab-like exception, uh, obsession to destroy the Borg. He's willing to sacrifice literally everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, and to everybody, yeah. 
Absolutely. And it's great that Lily does is the one, the voice that brings him back to that. And he, in the end, he ends up staying to save a friend. Yeah. Of all things, in in data, so he he has a nice little journey. He's very human. It's a very human, you know, classic Star Trek idea of the, the power of emotion, the power of humanity, you know, compassion, goodwill, friendship, and those things being put to the test, and watching the characters momentarily fall prey to their to the lesser angels of their being, and then to to step back. Here comes the one mention of Data's emotion ship from the previous film. Right. And it's um, used very nicely in this film as a little gag coming up here where he turns it off because he's anxious. And then later with the Queen, where the Queen reactivates it and he mm -hmm. becomes fearful. I remember so, I was really glad that we had the emotion ship I did in this too. film. I remember there were discussions. I think early on there was some debate about whether the emotion ship should be mentioned or used at all in this and I think we, we felt very strongly that you couldn't really move the character that far forward in generations and then just take it away from him in mm -hmm. the next film and pretend that it never happened that didn't seem right I believe I am feeling anxiety yeah the old emotion ship the most distracting yeah, I'm sure it's a fascinating experience but perhaps you should deactivate your emotion ship for now good idea sir done Brent's really good at yeah, that kind of thing. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. You know, you completely buy Brent Spiner as an android. You just never well, question it. Well, going to the set on this film to visit him during the Borg Queen sequences, um, where Brent at that time, I think, was smoke, <coughs> a, a smoker, and Data hanging outside smoking a yeah. cigarette, you, it just didn't feel right because he had his contact. I mean, he was Data. He was Data yeah, out there taking a drag on the cigarette. There's something dirty about it, something wrong. He was just so great in this film. I remember in those sequences, there was a beat coming up. It's much later in the film where he's lying on the table and, and when the Borg Queen is doing her thing and doing the, the skin routine. And I was standing there watching him. And they called Cut and came up. And I just walked in and I said, you're just my hero. It's just amazing to watch you work. Because it really is amazing to watch him work. He just knows that character so well, so intimately. And people love him. People love Data. They just respond to this sort of vulnerability and strength and mystery and naivete. And it's, he's a really interesting creation. This always bugged me about the Borg. Don't worry. They won't. They'll ignore you until you're a threat. And, you know, we were inherited this. Yeah, this was, this was and, our idea. And it's... It's kind of cool when you think about it, because they're like cool. bees, yeah. you know, but at the same time, it's like the board probably could have defeated humanity by now without that little pro well, piece of would, programming. If they would know. just walk a little faster, and if they would actually, like, care if you walk into the middle of their hive, you know, yeah, they, it's like these guys standing in the alcove should probably go, hey, you know, aren't these like the Starfleet guys? Yeah. It's like somebody, <laughs> somebody should do something, shouldn't they? No, they're not a threat to us. It's really unusual to see our characters, though, with all these rifles. I mean, it, this is a very, yes. this is very militaristic in, yes. in sort of Star Trek terms. Yeah, this this was a more hard-edged action picture. And yeah. I mean, perhaps we should just knock. Yeah, I mean, this has more action than any picture, except maybe Wrath of Khan, and even the Wrath of Khan fights are pri primarily ship to ship. They're mm -hmm. mostly space combat. And this is like guys in corridors with rifles and dodging bullets and running around. I remember this this film got a PG-13 rating, and one of the reasons was the violence. 
which by today's standards doesn't seem too bad. But there's a little moment when Data breaks a Borg's neck. I yeah. remember that that got that kicked it to PG-13 and the firing of automatic weapons. Right. There was like there a were strange little rules that. Um, yeah, you say the F word, you're like it's R. Give it up. You're yeah. It's an R-rated film. It's just there's just these quirks of the rating systems. Yeah, firing an automatic weapon. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, okay, so if it's a single shot weapon, but if you shoot it fast, then you won't get a PG-13. These were very. I remember this. These were very difficult scenes to shoot. All the Borg action sequences took a long time. I think it was like, well, Jonathan probably more, shot more directly to this, but all their equipment and the lighting and the costumes themselves, and it took forever to get these guys into these costumes every day. These are very complex sequences. And, and like Brandon said, just using the same eight guys over and over again necessitated lots of different cuts and having to do different setups to make you believe that you weren't watching this, the same eight guys over and over again. Data! I like the way Goldsmith brought the Klingon theme back in. Yeah, that's right. There it is. The Borg tubules and the Borg... A lot of stuff we established in here involving tubules and Mm -hmm. maybe even nanoprobes. We would go on to use um, a lot in Voyager... uh, because the Borg became a, a big part of that show, but yeah. a lot of this, the, the new, there's so much in this film that it was new about the Borg. Mm-hmm. You know, from the Queen to those little things that come out of the hand. Um, I always like this beat a lot too. Yeah, that she gets the drop on him and gets the phaser. You, how the hell did you? I like this whole subsection of the movie yeah, where she's got too. the gun on him and he's trying to talk her down and she's flipped out and doesn't know where she is and shows her the window. Now! Yeah, the window scene's one of, I think, one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay, don't start pushing buttons. The introduction of the Borg Queen with voice only. Yep. Haven't seen. Alice Krieger was cast, and it's funny. I remember um, when her name came up. She just seemed so perfect. She was in this film called Ghost Story, mm-hmm. where she had what I called a creepy sexiness. And if you remember that film, she was incredibly sexy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's something oddly creepy about her sexiness. And it just made it... She seemed like the perfect choice. Since she would smile, when she would give you that, that sort of thin-lipped smile and look at you, and you sort of felt like she might be thinking something really horrible at that moment. She's a sweet woman. Just a wonderful, wonderful woman. Really liked her. There's something that... I'm just. This is not a big criticism. Just something that always bothered me about the drones in here working pads. Yeah. It didn't seem very Borg-like. I know. Like, sudden, you know, they're drones, but maybe they're special drones because they're near the Borg Queen. I know. It's like they get pads. They look too individualistic, you know? Yeah, it's like they're aides, you know, taking memos or something. I remember liking... I, I remember enjoying writing the Borg Queen yes. it was fun to write those sequences I remember when we were writing this I remember wh- wh- where we were 
Where were we? We were at your house in um, Glendale. No. Oh, up at Pine Mountain. At Pine Mountain, in that little room we were writing in, and I remember doing the, these that first scene with. Actually, you were spitballing some great stuff for her, um, and it was it just came out. It was just so perfect. Yeah. And the, getting the voice of her, the the arrogance, the search for perfection, all of these notions were new. Yeah. You know, the Borg really. We knew the assimilated world, but we never really got into the idea of. What we're seeking is and perfection. Why? And why would we got deeper into the motivations book, which again would be used for years to come. Yeah. This really did a lot for the Borg. It really established the Borg's sort of cultural identity in a real strong way. This scene has the 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 line you you guys are in some sort of Star Trek. We went round and round about that. I we whether it should just be Trek, yeah, uh Star Journey. Well this had been Rick's secret fantasy. Remember? Rick yeah. had been wanting to do this for like eight years or something. He wanted to work work in the words of Star Trek into a show in some way. And this is the closest because Star Trek is such an odd phrase to begin with. This is the closest we could come. I always liked this beat of him of looking through a telescope and seeing the Enterprise up above. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was a cool idea. You know, how cool would that be? Looking through a telescope and seeing the Enterprise. Isn't this also the first? Now, yeah, this is Geordi's eyes are sort yeah. of redone in this without comment, right? Do we ever even comment? We on never this comment way? on it. Lavar Burton, uh, uh, understandably, was getting a little tired of trying to act with this big thing on his face, yeah. and he he made a compelling argument. Do ocular implants? It's the 24th century, and we never make a mention of it. In fact, we use the eyes later when he's zooming in on on yeah. um, Cochran running away. And it, it, I don't think anybody really missed the visor, you know. No, it was a, except from a visual sense. I mean, an audience visual sense, where you would look at the characters and the guy with the visor. Was you knew Jordan. that was Jordy. Yeah, you know, it always quickly identified him. You get to make first contact with an alien race. I do have to admit, I do kind of miss the visor, not for any practical reason other than it just sort of identified him, and it was just this visual thing that that was Jordy, and it was just kind of his signature deal. But again, um, and I understand all of ours when it's completely. Oh, totally. And I think what made it easier to swallow for us was it's the mo these movies are only coming out every few years. Yeah. So why not make changes yeah. in the characters? Yeah, you know exactly. There you go. Astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. Look, Doc, I know this is a lot for you to <laughs> You know, the audience reactions to this sometimes were laughs and sometimes groans. Yeah, there were few groans. I remember, oh, what? <laughs> Come on, guys. The costume designer for this picture was Deborah Everton. I always meant to ask Deborah Everton, what was that hat that he was wearing? <laughs> this sequence right here, this montage is worth noting. This was actually something that was written and added after the first cut of the film, long after shooting was complete. Oh, right. There was a period the studio felt, and we agreed totally, that there was a section here where we needed some action. Yeah. So we decided to write and, and go back and shoot a Borg assimilation montage. I think it was also they gave us more money at that point too. Oh yeah, we were. I think we were all forcing more action and stuff, but we 
in through the first draft or the shooting draft there just wasn't money to do a lot of things and then everyone agreed that yeah we could use more scary suspense action mm -hmm. Borg taking over the Enterprise crew and so we got we got some extra dollars and that's why all these sequences don't have any of the principles in them yeah exactly you're right and this was great this shot yeah this is a great shot And basically, that was it. The yeah. film used to go right from the previous scene to yeah, this. Straight into here. Just describing how bad yeah. things are getting. Things are getting real bad down there that we can't show. Yeah. So we decided... Oof, you shouldn't have. I'm yeah. glad you weren't down there. <laughs> what is on deck 11? Hydroponics, stellar cartography, deflector control, no vital system. They would not have stopped there unless it gave them a tactical advantage. Return to your checkpoint. Send reports every ten minutes. Right, sir. This poor guy. He's always said that guy in this movie. He's always sent back down. He's <laughs> yeah, bumming. It's like you go down there. We will stay up here where it's safe. Right, here comes the scene. With my favorite scene. Yeah, I just really like this scene. The, the relationship between these two, this scene and this in the this far no no farther scene. Yeah, have got to be the t the the two best scenes. Yeah. On a ship, uh, a spaceship. Orbiting the Earth at an altitude. There's such an audience satisfaction in, I think, whenever you take a character like this, like Lily, and throw them into this world and, and experience the emotion and sort of the fun of knowing what she's about to learn, mm -hmm. but also watching Picard struggle to explain it, you know, and, well, it's sort of a ship you don't understand. It's, it's almost like... Travel. I remember when we were sneaking into little showings on, on opening night, after one of the showings, a guy was walking out with his girlfriend, and he was saying, See, I told you. I told you it would be good. And you got the feeling he dragged her butt to that yeah, movie. Yeah. And it's, she was a little like Lily, yeah. where you're trying to look. No. These people are cool. It's cool stuff. You it's just got to... <laughs> come on, just go with us here. Put the phaser down. Go to the movie. What's yours? Lily. Yeah, you really don't have to know anything about Star Trek no. to kind of be brought in and get what the soul of Star Trek is really all about and how it all came to be. There's the theme again. If you fired this, you would have vaporized me. It's my first ray gun. These scenes with uh, Lillian Picard were the scenes that probably went through the most rewrites. Yeah. Um, we worked very hard to get these scenes where they needed to be. and They went through a lot of rewrites. I think the only thing about the, the film that didn't quite make it, that I think ended up on the cutting room floor, was there was really more of a budding romance between these two than ultimately ended up. There was even a kiss at the end, right? Yeah. He actually kissed her, and then they got cut. You're right. It just didn't work, and it wasn't really necessary. Yeah. It was There's a friendship across the centuries between yeah. these two. Um, and I think it, when we were writing it, we I mean, in, like we alluded to earlier, the early drafts, when he, she was a photographer and they were down on the planet's surface, the, rom the romance between the two was a very strong chord. It was a romance, was definitely part of the story. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of stuck through all subsequent drafts as just sort of a holdover idea. And then when we got into this, we, we just kept the, uh, the romantic angle and, get, and they kissed and said goodbye at the end. And then you kind of watched it and it was like, well, he hadn't really earned the kiss. I mean... It wasn't really a romance, so it just got cut. This scene of the this was great, and this kind 
the coming together. This was a big elaborate optical. It might not seem elaborate by today's standards, but it was pretty amazing. I remember that Paramount cut together a trailer that was going to go on television and did that showed that mm-hmm. and I remember we started squawking like you can't show the Borg Queen coming yeah, together like, we want on. that to be a surprise but Sherry Lansing I remember she Rick conveyed that she said you want people to see the movie show the good stuff <laughs> what does it matter whether it's present I thought that was an important That's lesson it's like just show them the stuff get them in there show, get them in the seats if they want to see it they'll go see it you are in chaos, David. Just an incredible makeup and, and costuming. I like the little, it's a subtle thing, and I don't even know why they did it, to be honest, but there's a slight sheen to her face. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a slight sort of glisten, which really gives her this odd sexuality, sexuality yeah. you know, through it all. And the way she holds her head and moves her body, I mean, it's just, it's erotic, you know, in an odd way, right from the get-go. By assimilating other beings into our collective. We're bringing them close. She also has in silver contact lenses that make her eyes look highly reflective, which was kind of otherworldly, too. That is because you haven't been properly stimulated. And here comes the infamous blowjob scene. Where she <laughs> yeah, that's what we called it. You have... Yeah, this is super kinky. You know, yeah, this just is a little right. square we're, of we're pushing it out skin. Huh? I'm not frightened. I'm not frightened. Yeah, this was Rick's image. I remember Rick came up with this image of this little patch of skin, just a very small patch of skin with just just human hairs on it. And in an extreme close-up, she would blow on it and mm-hmm. just barely see that the hairs move. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a very cool thing. And she blows on it. Was that good for you? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> how many planets are in this veteran? It's nice. I mean, I, I'm, I'd kind of forgotten how many different threads this movie has. I mean, it mm-hmm. starts as one cohesive whole, and then all the characters split off into all these different plot threads. And mm-hmm. I'd kind of forgotten all the intercutting and going back and forth, and yet you never really lose track of, of anybody. Now coming up is a, is the holodeck sequence. Pretty soon, yeah. Oh, Borg are they Swedish? Sounds Swedish. They're going for the, all the all the old jokes. <laughs> there were the Bjorn Borg jokes. Well, the, it's the jokes we couldn't do on the show yeah. because we didn't have a character who would make that right. who would make that joke. Who would make the reference? And here here he is telling her about how there's no money in the future and they're not driven by the pursuit of this and that and yeah. what do you guys do will we better ourselves this is Gene Roddenberry's vision is, of the future like, yeah, here's, here's what Gene thought the future would be like the no money concept was always a bit baffling money doesn't exist in the 24th century no money you mean you don't get paid? <laughs> yeah. The acquisition get paid. Will, what? It's no longer the driving force. Oh, it's a Soviet state. Oh, I understand. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Those are like direct lifts from something, some episode or something Gene had written, or maybe Gene wrote in the Bible. But the we work to better ourselves. I mean, those, that is those straight up. It might have been. Is it? Was it out at the next gen bottle? It might be. It's straight up Roddenberry, no chaser. Is that another way around? 
I know what I'm doing. We thought it would be fun to make Lily run the gauntlet of Borg, yeah. though I don't know if this sequence is really all as scary as we had hoped. Yeah, I was it never... It plays a little more comically um, in well, this moment, which is fine. It's fine. I think it's I think it's, it's hamstrung by just the concept of the Borg themselves, like we were talking about earlier. The fact that they don't bother you if you don't bother them, and that they walk very slow, takes some of the tension out of this this whole sequence. Because there's not much of a threat here, really. And Lily's reactions are kind of, you know, a little... Yeah. She's sort of in a haunted house, kind of a feel. Oh, well, now we've got our attention. Yeah, here's No, if you get caught by the board, you deserve it. I mean, they're so slow. (laughs) I know, it's like, come on, guys. So, Holodeck Adventure. The Big um, Goodbye is the name of the episode where this was this Holodeck Adventure was first established. Now, if, if you look, if you're watching widescreen and you look to the right, oh the, no, there you are. There, that's, that's me. That's Mr. Brown there. They sheared my hair off that morning. I was very upset, <laughs> and I I snuck in on the first shot of the day to get my cameo, but poor Ron didn't have <laughs> my, my 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 ex-wife and I at the time. Where I, I came home and I said, "Guess what? We're going to get to be in the movie." Is our an- is my anniversary present to her? Because it was our anniversary, and she kind of looked at me with, "Oh, uh, great!" Is that it? Was, yeah, yeah. I was so jazzed and so brand. We're all going to go. We're going to be extras in this great period piece in the holodeck, Art Deco. It's going to be so cool. So uh, Ruby and I spent. You know, a couple hours getting made up and costume and hair and the whole nine yards and Brandon somehow got his cameo like first thing in the morning. Well, because you wanted to be in the dance. Scene. I wanted to be in the dance, and, and I didn't. Wa- I didn't care, so I just wanted yeah. to get get in and get out. So his he shoot they shoot Brandon out like in the first hour, and then Ruby and I sat in chairs and watched them shoot a lot of this. And we were supposed to be at that table with the guy with the nose eventually. But what happened is they just kept pushing the sh- our scene, and they kept just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Sixteen hours later, they had not shot it, and they said, "Well, we're not going to get to you guys today. So um, <laughs> if you want to come back tomorrow, we'll definitely pick that shot up tomorrow." And we were like, "Uh, no." <laughs> and we went home, and we were just like, "Oh my god, that was the longest day." It gave us a real insight into what it is to be an expert, yeah. to sit in those big halls, because while all this is going on, all the people in this room are extra, are background players, and they're held out in a big staging area with lots of makeup tables and folding chairs, and they're just all sitting there in costume and their hair done, and they can't do very much, and reading you know, paperback novels and crossword puzzles for hours while the lights are set up for this whole sequence. You know, and they do this like 50 billion times, and then they go back out and sit in the folding chair again, and they don't get to, you know, the principal actors have have trailers and, you know, attendants and food brought to them, and poor extras are sitting out there with, you know, half a sandwich and, you know, lays Harold Robbins' novel. <laughs> this was all shot down in Union Station in Los Angeles. Yeah, you're, that's right. This was not a set. This was another semi-controversial scene with Picard too, where we, you know, he kills this guy, almost beats him over the head with the submachine gun, then plows around inside of his guts, 
pulls out the chip and then realizes it's an Enterprise officer. You know, she notices that he's got the insignia, and it's an Enterprise officer, and he just doesn't care and is moving on. It's like, whoa, that's our captain? Jean-Luc, it's one of your uniforms. Yes, this was Ensign Lynch. Tough luck, huh? There's not much technobabble in this movie. Yeah. This is probably the most of it here where he figures out the deflector dish stuff. So it's pretty clean in that regard. Yeah. I remember there was there were references in the script, in earlier drafts of the script, that sort of gave you a little more backstory on... Uh, oh, well, here's Barclay, who's also one of the mm-hmm. great characters that we like to... Uh, Dwight Schultz, who played the character on Next Gen in several episodes, and it was a lot of fun to put him into this episode, too. And this is the, the it's a movie, Ron. I gotta keep... So <laughs> movie, movie, forget TV. Yeah. All this hero worship stuff, and that he went to Jordan, you know, Zephyr Concord High School. That was fun. This, I, li- I like this whole sequence. Cool. <laughs> Oh, but anyway, what I started to say was in in early drafts, there were references and sort of backstory about what had caused the Third World War. And there were references to sort of the Eastern Alliance or something, which was China. Actually, the phrase Eastern Coalition is still in the movie. Is it still in there, the Eastern Mm -hmm. Coalition? It's it's very vague, but Picard mentions it. So there was some kind of implication that a a new sort of superpower had risen with China and some other allies of China, and then there was a nuclear exchange between that and the uh, allies of the United States, and that had resulted in the Third World War. But uh, slowly but surely, we just kept like losing those references, and it felt it felt like you didn't really need to get into the politics of what had happened and why. It was more somehow just the fact that it had happened was devastating, that we'd allowed a Third World War to happen on the planet was really the point, and that mankind had fallen to that, to that state, and that we were really... You know, down as far down as we could be, and had 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 the ultimate catastrophe, and would we rise up again? And that that was really the setting for Star Trek. It's just a little hero worship, Doc. To tell you the truth, I can't say I blame him. We all grew up hearing about what you did here, or what you're about to do. You know, I probably shouldn't even tell you this, but I went to Zephyr. <laughs> yeah, I went to Zephyr Cochran High. Oh yeah, and then this this whole thing with the I wish <laughs> the statue. The statue. <laughs> I like the line from Riker later. He yeah. says, "You told him about the statue." Oh, about the statue. He flips out, runs away. You're standing almost on the exact spot where your statue's gonna be. <laughs> statue? Oh yeah. It's marble, about twenty meters tall, and you're looking up at the sky, and your hands sort of. Reaching toward the future. I gotta take a leak. <laughs> <laughs> Another line we never got to in the series. Our characters were always a little strangely naive, like he doesn't yeah. know what that phrase means. I know, is. he doesn't know what a leak means. <laughs> a leak, and he looks around. <laughs> and then he's sort of oddly charmed by the clue. You get the feeling like Jordy now goes back to the Enterprise and says yeah. that all the time, you know? Like his new, his new hip phrase he's found from the 21st century. Captain. Jean-Luc. Reports of my assimilation are greatly exaggerated. I found something you lost. I am a 
This was also one of the things we thought about early. She has to meet Worf. She has to look at Worf. over half the ship. We have tried to restore power to the bridge and the weapon systems, but we have been unsuccessful. We have another problem. Have access to Borg neuroprocessors. This is a hard one. This was a mouthful. Transforming the deflector dish into an interplexing beacon. Uh, interplexing. Interplexing. But what was cool about the idea is that they're going to call reinforcements from this century because the Borg yeah. are still out there yeah, in Borg this earlier century. Yeah, they're very far away. So they it was it was a it was a good little twist. Well, the whole gag was just a, it was just an excuse to get us out of the hull. I remember yeah. why that how did that come up? Well, we the the, the hull gag? Yeah, how did the, the hull gag? The hull the hull gag originated very simply. We just thought it would be cool. Yeah, to do something outside the ship, right? Yeah, a a fight on the hull. And at that time, <clears throat> we actually didn't have the reason why. Right. We eventually got to it. And, you know, I remember we originally saw the Borg as moving faster and being more like the aliens from the movie Alien. Remember, right, we right. always kind of go fast. Yeah. It didn't end up happening that way. but uh, And we saw a lot more Borg out on the hull originally, I think. Yeah, they were crawling up. all over it. Cochran? Yeah, it's nothing more than a cool image that we wanted to do. These were the first time that this was the first time that spacesuits had ever been seen on Star Trek. Correct? Yeah. Uh, in, how about the original? In, not since the original, yeah. They did them in the original series. And surprisingly, these are sort of shaped a bit like the original series spacesuits. I always like this little gag that, that Worf, you know, gets a bit space sick <laughs> in zero G. <laughs> you know, that he might vomit inside of well, his Worf helmet. Worf is essentially know. humiliated throughout this movie. <laughs> well, he always has been. <laughs> it was always a trick, you know. If you this, bring on an alien that's got a tough guy or a big, strong alien, the first thing, how do you prove that he's big and strong? Have him kick Worf's ass. Yeah, know? exactly. This was very early CGI kind of stuff. Yeah, um, this is early CGI. And um, those little guys walking on the hall. They built in, but they did build a big piece of the deflector. Oh, they built the whole deflector. Yeah, it was a and big it was, set. It was the biggest set, I think, we've ever done to date. Yeah, for on a soundstage for a Star Trek movie. Yeah, that whole no, that's CGI, I guess. Yeah, that's CGI. It's coming up in a little while. So this was a pretty, for its time, a pretty spectacular shot. Mm -hmm. You know. I never liked the way the Borg patted the thing. It always bothered me. It's like he closes the thing and he pats it once for you know, like like <laughs> tucking him in. Yeah. I always thought that was like a mistake. That, know. You know, it's a bit of bedside manner yeah. from the Borg. This is very strange. Problem of increased signal degradation inherent to organosynthetic transmission. Do you always talk this much? <laughs> <laughs> Not always, but often. Why do you insist on utilizing this primitive linguistic communication? Your android brain is capable of so much more. Have you forgotten? I think when we wrote this, as I recall, I think our intention was there was just one Borg queen, period. Right? The entire Borg civilization was mm -hmm. her. And once you got rid of her, that was it. And then I think, 
And there might have even been references to that in the script, like she was the only one. And I think, didn't we, like, remove those? Because then we started, I think you were already starting to think that you wanted to do other Queens and Voyagers. No, 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 actually, no. No? No, not at this. Not at this stage? No, nowhere even close. Hmm. No. No. This was done in the first season of Voyager. It was all... Oh, was this first season of Voyager? Gosh. No. Um, But why, we wanted more than one Queen? We were thinking there was more than one? No, well, in this movie, we were thinking that there was only one. Yeah. But didn't you later establish in Voyager that she wasn't the only queen? That there were queens? Plural? Yes, because the queen... No, I, I'm just not... Maybe I'm yeah, not... I, you know what? I don't, I don't think so. No? Well, the queen is killed. Right. In this... In this movie. movie so, yeah. Another... I don't remember how we explained it in Voyager, but yeah, there had to... They created another queen, I guess. This is a really cool... The don't be tempted by flesh scene. Yeah. Clear to you yet. Look at yourself. Standing there cradling. Well, there was something so interesting about a being such as Data with all his abilities and all his brain power and all his amazing physical strength and gifts and android who could be laid low just by this this sensual that this sensation, this this small thing they had never had before, genuine feeling, genuine you know, pain and pleasure in, in his skin, that that could just like completely floor him and take his knees out. And tear the skin from your limb as you would a defective circuit. And he can't do it. Which I love too. We won't stop you. Do it. Don't be tempted by flesh. This next little seduction was inspired by the Tasha Yar data scene, where he, in the first season of TNG, second episode. If you are referring to sexuality, I am fully functional, programmed in multiple techniques. <laughs> It was something the fans grappled onto too. The phrase "fully functional," you would you would see it on like you know T-shirts at yeah. Star Trek conventions, and people would always write in questions and things and asking when when they could see Data fully functional again. I'm sure there were many uh, examples of fan fiction written that uh, yeah. not not suitable for not the suitable for prime time. Yeah. It's funny, I mean, both Data and Spock sort of had obsessive fan reactions in just that vein. Fascinated with the idea of, of being the woman for Spock and well, being the woman for Data. because they're virgins. Yeah, they're virgins. They're, they're untouchable and they're... Yeah. This is the set. That's a blue screen behind them, of course. And then that's the set, which was pretty, pretty big. big. And this was all very, I mean, it was very complicated, too, because when you get right down to it, trying to do a live-action set that's emulating weightlessness, I mean, you start worrying about, I mean, later there's sequences where we have steam going off to simulate gas, and then the gas tends to fall back down towards the, 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 mm -hmm. the floor of the set, and that's not right, and you're trying to avoid those kinds of things, and all these just sort of minor things that blow the, the illusion that it's all weightless, and you're constantly trying to fight against those. You still looking for the bathroom? I'm not going back. Look, Doc, we can't do this without you. I don't care. I don't want to be a statue. 
Doctor, you stay away from me. <laughs> Good enough time for this. You told him about the statue? So now the, what we always saw is the big set piece, the big set ac action set piece of the of the movie. Um, again, my, not to sound pre uh, pretentious, but I don't have a lot of criticisms of no. this film. Things that I was disappointed in. This was a very minor one. The, this sequence always played, a, and this is not a fault of anyone but our own. It played a little slower than I anticipated, yeah. and the reason is. The characters, the characters have to get across large spaces, and there's a funny thing that happens when actors play in zero g. They all move slowly, slowly and yet when you think about it, you would move perfectly normal. Look how slow he's moving. Yeah. You would move not only normally, but because of there's no air resistance, you might even move faster, faster. but not really. But why yeah. is everyone moving like it's this? Yeah, we're we're in outer I know. space, and I remember having this discussion. Yeah, look how set. slow he is. And we talked about it. And talked about it with Jonathan. And I think he talked to the actors about. It. But there's just this thing. They're in a weightless environment. It's, yeah. They're not underwater. But they're not weightless. They're stuck to the hull, and they're they're I moving know. around. I know. So it, it was a little more sluggish, but I got to tell you, I didn't hear that complaint ever about this. No. I think the audience really Thank dug this whole it. thing, and there's just lots of cool moments in it. And I think part of the reason this plays slowly too is just the MacGuffin of the scene of what they have to do. You know, turning the, punching in the buttons, turning the thing. You have to do it and a certain mm -hmm. sequence and they all have to be done it's like you set up this sort of Rube Goldberg device that the heroes have to accomplish and then it just took a long time for them to accomplish that particular goal and again you know the nature of the Borg they're still moving the Borg is still taking their deliberate time you know putting their master evil plan into work you know, I remember at some early draft, we had Borg coming at him from all sides, oh, yeah. crawling like ants on the hull, mm -hmm. and they're battling, and and um, it's just that just wasn't tenable budgetarily. Yeah, you know? we couldn't do it. And so you tell yourself at the time, you go, well, no, we'll go with traditional Borg, it'll be creepy and scary, and there's the threat, it's the, the zombie that you can't stop, you know, and it's Michael Myers from Halloween, and he only walked very slowly, it was a terrifying figure. Deliberately, yeah. Yeah, and you figure, well, that'll, that'll, that'll carry it. Not really, it's, still, it's, a little, it's a little on the slow side. It's like all the individual pieces work pretty well. Yeah, I mean this little fight with—I remember the audience, uh, the audiences I saw with all cheered when he brought out the mini bat left thing. Or yeah. it's not a bat left. It's, it's what's yeah, it it's called a, a met oh, yeah, left. Was a met left. A met left. Mechleth. 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 See, so like there, you can kind of see the gas starting to fall slightly t down as it shoots up in the air. And we had to cut away from that really quickly. Yeah, Worf is. <laughs> yeah, that, this is great with the blood and all. I know. Was it great? Warning: decompression in 45 seconds. Those suits weren't designed very well. Right <laughs> yeah. You might want to have a self-repair kind Put of thing. Put some steel mesh in there. 
You know, I'm not even sure what they're doing. Uh, I was just going to ask you, what are they doing again? Well, they're releasing the maglocks to to get the dish off. But the audience, I don't think, really knows that. Well, the dish floats up in a way. Well, that's what it is. They they want to destroy it, but they can't blow it up on the ship. Right. Too often on Star Trek, our heroes end up pushing buttons. Yeah, pushing buttons. The same can be said I mean I just in all of the films with or all the next generation in general had a, a lot of that which which I never really thought yeah, was very exciting it was, it was never it's like in the finale of generations there's Picard pushing but yeah. it just doesn't feel right thank god we didn't do that at the end of this movie yeah it's it's something that you just kind of fell into because you would set up these complicated sci-fi gags that See, look at the gas. Yeah, look at the gas. It's falling down. Yeah, that's totally wrong. Yeah. But with this, is, you know, we did, CGI was at a much earlier stage of the game when this film was made. There was no way... Today, you would just go in and... We would, probably wouldn't even do live gas on the set. You would just do it all CGI with you know, a bare minimum set, and it would be easy to animate that stuff today. A lot of times you would just write these complicated sci-fi tales that depended on very specific notions of science and this and that, and inevitably to wrap it up and explain it all, characters would have to go to consoles and press buttons, and you do the worst, the, the hardest thing is when you were depending on what those computer screens say. Oh, there it says maglock servo control active cycle complete. Yeah, at least we know, and you have to say it in very big, clear, easy to understand letters because the audience is just going to glance at it for a moment, and you're, you're trying to convey a key plot point. Yeah, hats off to Jonathan Frakes trying to get all... I mean, there's just so much work goes into this stuff. Poor Ensign Hawk. Yeah, I liked Ensign Hawk. If only he hadn't hesitated so long. Yep. Got to be quicker than the Borg, buddy. Nice shot. <laughs> yeah. It ties up with the guy's arm. <laughs> That's funny. And of course this sequence is rounded off with the cheesiest line of the movie. That uh We've had a change of plans, dude. This is one of those scenes we added in, I think, mm-hmm. because our yeah, wrote in at the last minute to just sort of keep connect her to what was happening out there. Well, there were always questions about what the queen knew. Assimilate this. Uh, yeah, assimilate <laughs> this. Uh, I'd like to lay that at Michael Dorn's feet, but I'm not quite sure I can. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if we wrote that or not. Yes, we did. You know, it's funny sitting here watching it again. This is a nice scene, too, with Riker and, and Cochran. This scene I always liked. I, for some reason, I was always struck by the idea of him looking up at the moon and that the moon in the 24th century was different. She looked up and there was mm-hmm. a lake up there. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the, the changes were not just people and technology, but the planets themselves had changed. You know, that the moon didn't look like the way the moon looks today. There's Troy. Uh... The countdown mistress in Mission Control. <laughs> yeah. You know, always looking to give the characters something to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like, well, what's Troy doing while they're doing all this? Uh, well, she's up in mission control with some guys. And, and you know, Beverly compl- Crusher completely drops out of this movie. Yeah, Beverly, yeah, is sadly not serviced well in this in this picture. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it was always hard, even on the television series, to service all of these characters. It's a big cast, you know. It's 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 a large cast. Even Lake Armstrong. Lake Armstrong. Uh huh. How do you know, Doctor? Please, don't tell me it's all thanks to me. I've heard enough about the great Zephram Cochran. I don't know who writes your history books or where you get your information from, but you people got some pretty funny ideas about me. I think the last time I saw this picture was there was a premiere in London, and Paramount flew Brandon and I and the cast and director, uh, cast Jonathan, obviously, and uh, Rick, and we all went to London. It's a great trip. And uh, there was a royal premiere, mm-hmm. and Prince Charles was there. Yeah. And we all got to meet Prince Charles, and we were all... We stood in the royal receiving line. We stood in the royal receiving line. And we, we had line. to get instructions about how to behave. Yeah, they were very strict. You know, you say this, don't say that. And I remember there was something in it where uh, you had the... You know, British... They were Because they were British members of the cast, British subjects were expected to bow and curtsy. Americans had the option. I remember Rick being very sort of like... What do you care? We're not going to bow. <laughs> we fought an entire revolution. I'm not going to bow to this guy. What are you talking about? What did we do? Shake his hand? We shook his hand, and I think I nodded my head. Was my, <laughs> but you, my, you found a compromise. Yeah, I nodded towards him. But he was very charming. I mean, Prince Charles, he came He talked to each person. He talked to each person in line, spent like a few seconds, and said something. And sat through this movie. Sat through this movie. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah. And remember <laughs> Probably the royal, had no clue. Do you remember the royal pillow? It was like a little purple pillow with a royal seal on it that was on his chair in the auditorium. And he sat on it? And he sat on it. Or, or used it behind his back or something. Wow. But you went in and like his seats were empty and people next to him. And there was this little purple pillow. I don't remember that. Prince Charles' seat. Well, I remember the thing, too, was we were waiting in the cloakroom before we met Prince Charles and the cast of there were all kind of like excited and this is going to be kind of cool. Oh, Marina, Marina and Patrick. Oh, you know, yeah, were, this was like a major thing. Yeah. And, uh, but at that point, he had, he was divorced from Diana, not too, like it was fairly fresh that they had gone through the divorce and everybody, I remember, was talking about that. Like, where's she? I wonder if she, oh, wish she was here, you know, and, and kidding each other about saying, you know, ask him about her. Say, how's it, Diana? You know, we were all like joking about <laughs> doing something. And then, but then many years later, you know, after Diana died, I remember thinking back about that and really being struck by the, the fact that he was, even before she had died, he was haunted by her. He was always going to be the man. Mm-hmm. Who was with Diana? You know, when she was alive, she was this presence that was in the room, even when uh, she wasn't there. And then after she died, I thought, gosh, he'll never escape from the shadow of that woman. This was a, a fan favorite moment the conflict between yeah. Worf and Picard. Get off my bridge. Let's see, Beverly's back. So, what are we doing here? Carry out his orders. Dyson, Kaplan. Start working on a way to modify the weapon system. If we can get off this ship and then blow it up, let's do it. Once the captain's made up his mind, the discussion is over. Lily. You son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a pretty key sequence scene. Yeah, this is a good one. They're just afraid to come in here and say it. The crew is accustomed to following my orders. 
Him and Patrick really getting into this scene, him really liking this, this was one of the key things that, as I recall, that drew him to the story. We worked a lot on this scene. Yeah, there was a lot of rewriting of this. I mean, if you really think about it, it's astonishing that when we first conceived this and wrote our first draft, none of this was there. No, I'm trying. It, it just it was just a completely different thing. I mean, that's how re that's how the process, it, that's how it goes. And that's the great thing about doing a film is you have a year. Yeah, you got time to, to work. To get on. it right, not two weeks. Yeah, with an know? episode, you're just you're committed to a, a certain direction relatively quickly. I was one of them. I'm trying to even remember what the central dilemma was for Picard in that first draft. I don't recall. We saw it as a... If you would excuse me, I have work to do. He gets the town to rally around to build the ship. Oh, And he right. gives a big speech, and it's kind of a... An homage to uh, what's the one of those Capra moments, like right? Frank Capra like, thing. You, Fred, you remember when you were doing yeah. so and so? It's embarrassing to even bring yeah. it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember. I remember us being very embarrassed after we wrote it. <laughs> yeah, because she, yeah, he's trying to rally the townspeople, and then yeah. she was called Ruby at that point, and Ruby yeah. gets up and and says, "No, don't you know what he's saying?" And you, your shop, and so and so, and you were working with your daughter, daughter. Betty Sue, and it was just this whole like Frank Capra moment of rallying the town to go build the ship and you know overcome the great odds. You didn't even try. Where was your involved sensibility then? I don't have time for this. And see, this has no this has no real romantic heat. No, it's really it's not, not what it's about. It's not what it's about. So that for these two characters to at the end kiss makes no sense. It was like what? What? You do have books in the twenty fourth century. This is not about revenge. Liar! This is about saving the future of humanity! John Luke, blow up the damn ship! No! No! I always like that a lot. I will not sacrifice the Enterprise. We've made too many compromises already. It's such an unpicard moment. Yeah, no, I mean, this was just never the man. The man that we it's saw raw. In the series. It's raw. It's very raw. And, and but this is Picard. I mean, but he's an, a, an angry Picard. This is great. Yeah. This far, no farther. Yeah. And I will make them pay for what they've done. And you wish you could say that as writers, you write something. And I think a lot of people who aren't writers think you write something and it's an inspiration. And you put it down on paper and it's magic. This stuff goes through so much work, mm -hmm. so th th over a period of months, to get it just right. Yeah. I mean, there are those rare times when you write oh, it and it doesn't change. But absolutely. Much more frequently is the... Is oh, the and I'll tell you, the Borg Queen scenes with Data... They didn't change much. Yeah, they didn't change too much. You no, know, we got those the that. first time. This went. This was. But a this lot Lily of, arc went through a lot of yeah, of work, especially that key critical moment like this. I think Patrick himself seized on that particular passage from from Moby Dick. I think he. I think we wanted to quote a passage, and I think Patrick knew Moby Dick really well and seized yeah, on that particular quote right. and wanted to use it in the scene. 
There was some minor controversy, too, about whether we should even reference Moby Dick in this picture, because they had referenced it in, in Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. You're right. And that kind of, it seemed like everybody kind of went, well, well, we didn't want to re repeat it, yeah. uh, but it worked here. It was so perfect for the, the arc, and it, it, just, it just brought everything into such focus that we just went for it anyway. I remember in various times in the show, in the series, you'd be in the room and you would pitch ideas about the captain going too far. Let's do a story about the captain goes too far. The captain gets obsessed. The captain goes over the line. The captain becomes crazed. The captain, you know, sacrifice, is willing to sacrifice everything for some person. And it, they were almost inevitably always shot down, that it was too much too far, that you couldn't go there with the captain but when we got to the movies it seemed to require a larger and that's the moment thing, that's the thing about the movies I mean it's it's difficult to, to do something like that and come back next week and everything's fine yeah everything's back to normal but yeah you've got to do broader deeper uh, more sweeping things with the characters when you're only seeing them every two, four to year, two to four years begin auto destruct sequence authorization Picard 47 Alpha now they end up going to Gravat Island. Was Gravat Island is named after my assistant at the time, Jacques Gravat. I was trying to remember. You know, what's what's a little troubling is, speaking of assistants, uh, my assistant Terry Metalis. This was his favorite movie in in high school. Really? Yeah. Like, it's disturbing. Oh, that he was in <laughs> high school. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh. <laughs> you know, that's, I remember, that's great. Yeah, we are starting to get to that age. <laughs> I remember watching your show when I was a kid. Yeah. Said somebody who you're pitching to in a studio. But I did find out he wore a Starfleet uniform to the premiere. <laughs> really? Yeah. One of his friends told me that. Mr. Wolf. And here, here they make up. They make up. They should have kissed. I regret some of the things. Yes, we I regret some of the things. I love that. I regret <laughs> some of the things they <laughs> well, said. And then more says them. Yes. yes, we had a romantic arc planned for Worf and Picard at one point, yeah. and they actually did kiss at the end of this scene. But the love that dare not speak its name. So you're on Gravet Island. Yeah, I was trying to remember where Gravet Island came from. Now, this is where his connection to the Borg conveniently mm -hmm. comes into play. It's a little artificial, yeah, yeah. but it's nice. He's alone on the we bridge. We needed it. We had to get there. But how does he know Data's aboard, and why didn't he have it earlier? Yeah. Why didn't he have this little yeah. telepathic insight earlier? Well, and it's, kind of, it's, it's a problem in a structural sense, only because we haven't done it in so long. Yeah. We've kind of forgotten this even exists. Yeah, you're right. But nobody seemed to really question it. Yeah, you kind of go with it. Because you go, oh yeah, that's right, he had this weird connection. You know, why in the world did they pick this woman from the future to do the countdown? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. Begin ignition sequence. 20. Oh, God. 19. No, I remember. 18. What? Where is he? What? 16. We can't lift off without it. Jordy, we've got to abort. No! No, wait, I found it! 12, 11, 10. We always knew that we'd want a rock song playing. We never specified in the script what it would be. No. 
And I, I don't think we had anything to do with the. I think Peter Lauritsen is really into music, and he. Thank God we got the original song and not some cheap cover. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was surprised we we actually got Steppenwolf. This is a great shot. Yeah, I love that shot. I wonder if that's, and they're probably telling the supplemental, I wonder if that's pure CGI or if that's a combination of model work. Because while this film was being done, and, and the first one, it was that transition between, you know, models were starting to fade away a bit. And I think the Enterprise is completely CGI in this film. I think, I, I think it is. Yeah, I, I can't say for sure. Though. Make it! We'll be fine! Prepare first stage! Shut down and separation on my mark! You know, in a movie, you can actually have the set on vibrators. Yeah. Because um, you can afford it. It adds it's such a huge difference. Yeah, instead of acting and asking the poor actors to throw Big moment for the fans here is the nacelles. Yeah, the big nacelles that come out. Is, oh, and nobody expected go. it because you think it's yeah. probably just going to be this rocket shaped thing. But this was great. This got a cheer from yeah, the audience. It did. Because there's the lineage. There's the lineage that takes you back to the first Enterprise, and you know, there's Star Trek. You ain't seen nothing yet. See Commander Riker or any of my crew, give them this. What is it? Orders to find a quiet corner of North America and stay out of history. Did we? Was there a, Did they land and we follow them down to the ground too in an early draft? Oh my. Was no, it no. Or just in story, or do we talk? You're thinking about it generations. Or? Am I? Yeah. When the ship crashes and they run into oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bator in the jungle, the jungle or whatever. Jungle. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting them mixed right. up. And I often did. <laughs> that was a different episode. <laughs> it was a different episode. Still on this ship, and I owe him the same. God find your friend. It was always hard to find truly emotional, effectively emotional stories on, on Next Generation. Yeah. You know, there were many sci-fi adventures and, mm -hmm. and lots of cool stuff. Escape pod idea was new. We never really actually see them. Great optical yeah, them coming out. Um, and this was a, a case where the, the film has a lot, a, 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 the story has a lot of emotion to it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's he's going after his friend, which is really there, there's something powerful about that. This film has a lot more just genuine, just emotion in general than the series really did. It's it's much more sentimental, I think, in certain ways. I think it's much more raw, you know, the nakedness of Picard's emotion and anger and quest for thirst for vengeance and some of the sentiments that are expressed are much more earnest and I think the series tended to shy away from from showing the, the, the more emotional sides of the characters. And, and the deeply vulnerable sides. Yeah. I mean, this There's is nothing cool. but foibles. Yeah. The series had a, a certain coolness to it. There's a, some... This... We'll have to listen to this exchange. Something always bothered me about this final exchange between Picard and the Borg Queen and what, what they were getting at. It. He's here to save Data and kill her. Mm -hmm. What's wrong, Locutus? Isn't this familiar? Organic minds are such fragile things. How could you forget me so quickly? Oh, we have to explain why he... 
why we never mentioned her in Best of Both Worlds. Right. right. <laughs> like, anybody is. cares. I know. I mean, it really is overthink to a degree. Well, you know, one of the things with Star Trek, and it's a blessing and a curse, is the continuity in Star Trek. It's become very intertwined. It's it's Star Trek as a as a property, as a franchise, as a, as a creative art is now very much almost a prisoner of its own continuity. You know, there's there's an expectation on the the part is particularly of the fans, but even of all of those of us who worked on the show of the effort to make it all weave together, that there would not be disjointed pieces and stuff that didn't add up. And I know exactly what you're talking about. This, you know, and if you're a fan of the show, you know that there was no Borg Queen in Best of Both Worlds. So now you're watching the movie, and we felt a very strong obligation to come up with an explanation for that, that we had to put an explanation in this film that somehow tied that together for people that followed it. And... I was one of the biggest advocates of that kind of continuity. I felt I don't, and now a few years away from it, it's almost like you look back and God, the, we were so concerned with the continuity of the show. It was like somehow part of what made Star Trek work was the fabric of its believability, of the fact that all these pieces lined up together, that there was, there weren't just episodes, that there was a world had been created, and that world made sense, and that world functioned, and the backstories all lined up seamlessly, and things didn't just happen. And so we took it very seriously to try to explain all these things. And it didn't matter, because ultimately the fans would still write in and tell you oh, yeah. all the ways that you got it wrong, <laughs> and why it didn't work out, and how that couldn't have occurred because of this other episode that you morons forgot about, and why didn't oh, the... You know, I, so I, I mean, I'm so tired of being beat up about the continuity. <laughs> I, now, here's what got me about this. She's talking about... He's talking about, I can give you what you've always wanted. I'll give myself to you. Where was that coming from? Yeah, I don't uh, even know what that is means. Is she searching for a mate? Is that why she's turning Data into what he is? Yeah, she's, I think She's turning Data doing. into what he is so to get him to give her the codes. But and this she, whole thing we're like... And it's, there's some weird implication that when he was Locutus, what, he held something back then and now would be different because he'd do it willingly? Or yeah, it's a, it's, I'll give you an equal. You've always wanted an equal. It's an interesting little layer, but how necessary was it? I think uh, were we trying to give a little meat to uh, meat to their encounter, I a little meatiness. Like, you know, is that what we? I, I think so. I think what happened, as I recall, it's you know this this is all about Data's arc. This is all Data's story. Data and the Queen. Data and the Queen. Data and the Queen. Suddenly, Picard enters that story and really has no connection with anything that's happened in that room, except to come in here and save Data. And I think we wanted him and the Queen to have their own sort of special connection. Something. Yes. So we were grasping and groping and came up with that, the, the I'll give my specialness to you, whatever that means. He will make an excellent You know, the continuity thing you're mentioning is interesting because it's a tightrope. You know, you want to utilize the continuity and, ex and, and exploit it to come up <laughs> with stories. You don't want to violate it. Yet there are times when you either must ignore or contradict yeah. certain continuity elements if they're fairly obscure you know like the whole the uh, eugenics wars well the eugenics wars were in 1996 yeah okay it's referenced in the original in a line <clears throat> well in Voyager we did an episode that took place in 1996 are we going to do the eugenics wars well no because it would just be kind of strange but then later 
on the show that's on the air now, we're doing the eugenics wars. Mm -hmm. So there's this flip-flopping with continuity that you just have to kind of say, look, and we're, we're playing around with it a little. Don't take it too seriously. And yet, you have to be respectful because, as you say, this is a world for people. Some people. It's such a unique creation. I mean, Star Trek. I don't even know what else you can possibly compare it to. You can, you can almost compare it to the Star Wars mythos. But Star Wars is really only six films. You get right down and some novels and some novels. And and nobody said, pretends that the novels count. Even in Star Trek, nobody counts the novels. Right. They just exist in a so-called non-canon kind of the canon world. is the movies and the TV show and with Trek there's so many movies now and so many TV shows you have this enormous universe and over 700 over episodes 700 episodes in over what 35 years now mm -hmm. I mean it's a huge huge tapestry to try to keep track of but it's one of the things that draws people to it and I think part and part of that is just in the way it was born I mean the original series Three years, 79 episodes, not much continuity between the episodes at all. Very So like, people would seize on yeah. what was there, hungrily, yeah. correct? And in the interim, when, between the original series being canceled and the first movie, the fan movement starts in a genuine grassroots way, and people start filling in those blanks. They start making their own technical manuals, and they start mapping out the Federation, and they start coming up with blueprints to how the Enterprise works, and it's all sort of homespun. And then those things kind of became canon to themselves, and they started trying to fill in these these gaps. And then the movies happened, and that just gave more fuel. And then suddenly there's a new series, and people really started to believe in this world and this vision of the future of what it wasn't just a TV show or a movie franchise. It's really another universe that you could lose yourself in. And it's just become so enormous and so complex that it really is its own universe. It, at a certain point, you wonder if it becomes, if the continuity becomes so unwieldy that there comes a point where you have to just throw it all away and start over. Like, I don't know if you, you know, I, I'm not a huge comic book fan, but I do remember that there was a point where I believe DC Comics got to with, you know, the various permutations and all their classic characters, Superman, and, you know, uh, they had done many different variations of <coughs> Superman and Bizarro and Superman and all these different things, and there came a point where they just said, you know what, we're going to destroy all of them, and they mm -hmm. did a big series, like, I remember that. Worlds in Infinity or something, I can't remember, like, the mid-80s, and they just wiped the slate clean. People didn't like that. Yeah, people got flipped out, but it gave them a chance to sort of, like, untie themselves. Well, you know what, I'll tell you right now, it might be what Star Trek, the Star Trek franchise needs. It might be. It's going to need a jolt because yeah. its its popularity has waned in recent years. Not because of the sh that the shows are bad necessarily. It's just been around a long time. It's been around a long time. And it's becoming very familiar. And it's familiar. And it's its familiarity that's part of its appeal. Yep. And yet it's also part of its downfall. And yeah. it, it's going to need some sort of rest. Mm -hmm. And it's going to need some sort of major electric electrocution and to get it really, back and I, that may ha be a wiping clean of something I don't know it might have to be because I think really if you were going to step back into it I mean you're you, Brandon's still, still working in, in Star Trek and I, I've been out of it for a while but the thought of stepping back into it is daunting only because I go oh my god okay I've missed so much and there's all this continuity to have to catch up on and there's just such it's such a, a an intimidating mountain of material to try to be true to and then tell a story within that context that doesn't violate something and it's it is much more tempting to just wipe the slate clean 
start over again. Just still do Star Trek. Still do the Enterprise and, you know, take your choice of which characters you would want to do. Do Picard, do Kirk, do Chainway or Cisco or whoever. But to tell those stories again from the beginning and just dispense with all that has happened in the previous episodes and just do it again and, you know, like do Sherlock Holmes over or do anything mm-hmm. over, you know. To, to start again is, is, is really tempting when you're facing... But then, big, is it Star Trek? I guess. Yeah, is it Star Trek? I mean, I don't know. It's such a, it's, it's such it's its own unique creation. Like I said earlier, there's nothing I can really compare it to and and look to. Well, okay, that franchise when they got to a similar point, they did this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bond films stretch across a longer period of time, but they're not anywhere near. They reinvented this. how they, the the pacing and the, but they're they're pretty similar. This guy. This got, as I recall, the biggest laugh of the movie because when he uh, the little joke about how long he was tempted. Oh yeah, yeah, this did get a good joke, a good laugh. Part of me is sorry she is dead. She was unique. She brought me closer to humanity than I ever thought possible, and for a time. You know, this was kind of at the. The height of the franchise's popularity, mm-hmm. you know, um, Voyager was either pre- had premiered or was getting ready to premiere. Deep Space Nine was thriving. Yeah. Um, this, this, film this film did very well. It was very successful. Um, there's a lot of. It satisfied the audience. It brought them back in. They enjoyed being with these characters, and it, it's, <clears throat> it's yeah. This is the peak. April the 5th, 2063. The and now this, the ending here, the arrival of the aliens and them being Vulcans, actually, as I recall, is a very late addition. I don't think that we even... You know, I recall... I think we always knew it would be through Vulcans. Oh, did we? Yeah. We, we always... Yeah. Yeah, I don't mean to contradict no, you, no, but no, I, I, I remember I remember talking about the three wise Vulcans very early oh, on. Okay, very right. early on, and we always envisioned this scene. This would this was going to be the Star Trek nativity scene, and this was going to be. Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, what it was quite a surprise to a lot of people seeing it for the first time that they were Vulcans. I, I think that's what I'm tapping into. Yeah. just remembering that the audience was. Surprise! They cheered and they they yeah. you know people you know. really liked that the Vulcans came out of that space show. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, this this one little scene is really, in many ways, the genesis of Enterprise. I mean, this notion that the Vulcans make first contact, mm-hmm. are more advanced, come to Earth. By the warp thing and the you know the political ramifications of this. Really this is where I love that shot of yeah. the big ship. Um, yeah, this is how that this was the jumping off point was between this moment and Kirk. What happened yeah. in between? They're really from another world, and they want to want to meet the man. James Cromwell is very tall. Yeah, Jonathan Frakes. Jonathan Frakes is tall. Frakes is tall. Yeah. I like that little beat too. It's such a nice human moment for two characters that have been really been separated for the entire picture. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the the music here is so. I remember being in the theaters and this was really moving. 
and people would or would be misty-eyed and be holding their chests and gazing up at the scene and you were really watching something My, mystical and magical and a longtime friend of of ours uh, named uh, Ron Dr. Ron Dr. will deny it to his dying day but I'm telling you he we took him to the prayer I saw him dab his eyes with a napkin. Really? I saw him <laughs> during this moment. Well, he wasn't alone. I, he has that to comfort himself. <laughs> the first human trying to do the Vulcan salute. Yeah, that. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. I remember uh, when we wrote that. We actually wrote this movie in many different locales. We wrote this in Laguna. We were in Laguna Beach. Oh, yeah. We keep going on little, little mini vacations, vacations to, yeah. to focus. I think it's time we made a discreet exit. The 49ers won the Super Bowl that year. I also remember that. <laughs> Steve Young. <laughs> is, that, is this when they beat the, uh, the, the Chargers? Yeah, I think so. And here's that moment you spoke of. Yeah, this is the moment. This is where the kiss was. Did they shoot it both ways? I don't recall. They either shot it both ways, or there's just a convenient place to cu to cut around it. I envy you. It would have been so weird. It was weird. It was just like, oh, oops, what? Yeah, I think we just okay. cut around it. Well, I shall miss you. There he goes. It's pretty. Oh, he goes for the cheek. They shot it both ways. They did. Kisses her on the cheek, and then he kissed her like on the lips in the other direction. There's a certain connection there, but. It, it's almost like a what might have been, I suppose. <clears throat> yeah, but I think our intention, as I recall, the intention was more of a sad parting, like he really, it's tearing each of them up that he has to leave. Mm -hmm. And that was really a holdover from earlier versions. Report. The moon's gravitational field obscured our warp signature. The Vulcans did not detect us. It's a drag to end a story on exposition. I know. Isn't it? Yeah. I think there was a feeling, I mean, in a way, I kind of wish we had just stayed down there. And never come back up. But there's a. But you a gotta see him on the ship. Yeah, that's you know? the argument. You want to see. You want to put him back on the bridge. You want to put the family together. You want the family photo, which is essentially what this is. If you had ignored why they didn't see them, okay? It's not airtight. Mm -hmm. Maybe some people would have asked. Yeah. So what? So what? So you gotta wonder, you know. You gotta wonder, and like, does it matter? Not really. You could have stayed down here, had her look up at the sky, and the Enterprise goes away, and you would have got it. I love this little bit that he's just... Yeah, there's the Vulcans. <laughs> drinking and <laughs> he's playing rock music for them. It's such a, hu it's such a human thing, you know, and guy go, huh, what? The, the corruption of the Vulcan society begins on day one. I'm glad we end, that, we, that we do end it down here. Yes. That this is really the, the end and the beginning. Yeah. And as every movie ends, every Star Trek movie, um, with the uh, with the classic theme. Classic theme. I remember people cheering. I remember that was a really satisfying feeling that people cheered at the end of this movie and clapped, and the audiences really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. And that was a very this was a sheer pleasure to work on from uh, from beginning to end. Yeah, it was a very special movie. It was a really special experience all the way through. And this has been a very special uh, experience. Yes, yes. thank you, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if any of you made it through this, thanks, thanks, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Start it over and listen to us all over again. Okay, thank you. Thank you.